I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Nothing better than a sitting down with a uh, a doctor. Uh, yeah, Brian, B, show her, show show her the thing on your foot. <laughs> I was gonna say um, B, a wart, a, <laughs> a doctor who uh, who has a fucking podcast. I mean, that's a, a that is that's our ideal guest uh, today. We we're sitting down with Doctor Sammy. Uh, she is the co-host of the Waiting Room Revolution podcast, which I had the actual honor of being on that podcast. It was a great mm-hmm. time. Dr. Sammy is a BSC, an MD, a CCFP, PC in parentheses, and an FCFP. Let's go through. I love myself a little post-nominal. Let's go through it. BSC. Okay, a Bachelor of Science. Yep. MD, medical. Medical doctor. Okay, CCFP, parentheses, PC. Okay, so Certificate of the College of Family Practice with a specialty in palliative care. And the next one is the fellow of the college. That is like elevated. Okay. Oh, sweet. If you do say so yourself. Yeah. Okay. What does that mean? What does that actually mean if you're a fellow of the college? Well, it means that for a 10 year period in your first, in your 10 years of practice, your first 10 years that you have proven to, uh, <laughs> That you've proven to do all of the extra learning, the lifelong learning uh, that you have contributed regionally, nationally, internationally right. to your profession, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that you're really good looking. Right. Uh, right. I totally get it. It's the same as it's just like it's the same as my doctor nerd. It's like it's actually DN. It's the same as my my ten years of service medal in a in Counter-Strike on Steam. That's exactly like that. Man, the medical profession. you 800 hours played or something, 10 years of service, you've got like a lot of Doppler skins and stuff. On on top of, I'm going to move right on and not even comment on that, but on top of all that, you you also are the co-author of a book that is going to be coming out very soon, September 19th, called Hope for the Best, Plan for the Rest, Seven Keys for Navigating a Life-Changing Diagnosis. That's Dr. a great title. Dr. Sammy, first of all, mm-hmm. so fucking happy you're here with us today. Cannot wait to dive <laughs> into all things medicine with you. And um, uh, why don't you just give yourself a little bit of an introduction to our listeners. Give them some insight into who Dr. Sammy is. Okay. Dr. Sammy is a palliative care physician. Um after being a high school dropout, I'll just put that in there. Hey, um, right. <laughs> yeah. And um, so I work in people's homes. So I go from home to home to home uh, in my car, my car office, and I am on an outreach team. And we visit people in uh, their homes that have progressive life limiting illnesses. Mm. So illnesses that can't be cured and that they will eventually die from. And so the one that most people think about is cancer, but of course I could probably name another 15 uh, that would fall under that category. So unfortunately I end up uh, caring for people at the very end. And that's a very old fashioned way of looking at uh, palliative care, Mm. but we operate in a very old fashioned medical system, which um, we're trying to change which is why we started this social movement called the waiting room revolution, which does have a book, but it's more than that. 
Mm. I'm just curious. I haven't been able to read your book yet, but I have an idea for revolutionizing the waiting room. And I'm just curious if what you think about it, being the expert on revolutionizing Jesus Christ, Brian's room. about okay. to pitch something and we're only five minutes in. This is a record. <laughs> yeah, right? So, so I'll take note. So um, the, the revolution is I go to the waiting room with uh, my laptop. And I get seen right away. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a revolution. <laughs> but, uh, but I go there with my laptop and mm. I just use ChatGPT and I start um, diagnosing people who are waiting so that it reduces the amount of people who have to be triaged and see a real doctor. So that AI triage is basically what you're saying. Yeah. What yeah. do you think about that? Unregulated AI triage. <laughs> yes, that's right. It's interesting you bring that up because I was just thinking about doing an op-ed on uh, AI and... Uh, end of life care. So mm. yeah. Well, stay in what, tuned. In, yeah, in yeah, what terms? From what, in what yeah. capacity? I mean, yeah. obviously spoiler alert, let's like not die, but, yeah, but like, like how, what, where, where would AI sit in, 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 you know, how does AI, how could it be related to someone's end of life care? Okay. So I haven't really thought about this too much, except that I was driving along in my office and I was listening to someone, um, I think he had depression and they were, it was on the CBC and they were talking about AI and this person had depression and he made his best friend in AI. I can't remember yeah. what the name mm -hmm. of the AI was, but anyway, you guys might know. Pi. But it was probably it was high or either pie or um, previous. That was replica. Was Definitely wasn't replica unless he was fucking it. <laughs> yeah, you know, replica, oh, replica was a very sex, sex, replica sex. was just too no, horny. It wasn't replica yeah. was to too be. horny. It was probably pie. That's because of the lens you guys digress. <laughs> I'm horrified. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. We don't talk about sex in palliative care. <laughs> That's right. You don't. You don't. And, but, and, which you should. <laughs> yeah. I'm um, oh, sorry. We derailed your, uh, your no, uh, that's okay. Oh no. So I haven't thought about it too much, except that this guy was able to speak so openly yeah. about his mental health with his AI bestie. Mm -hmm. And uh, it gave him this therapeutic outlet. I mean, it's fraught with interesting uh, ethical issues and complications, but sure. so many people that I meet uh, keep what they're thinking in their brain and it mm -hmm. festers as uh, and amplifies physical symptoms. So yeah. it just was an interesting idea of being able to find an impartial sort of not real, really uh, an outlet for what you're thinking, like mm -hmm. fears and worries. Totally. Yeah. For me, I, I kind of think of it as, and, and obviously there are a lot of problems with it as well, but, um, and I don't think it's like a replacement for um, seeing an actual psychologist or therapist. Yeah. But if, if you think of it like a journaling partner mm -hmm. um, yeah. and, and don't see it as like an actual, I mean, some people benefit from seeing it as another person. But if you look at it as a journaling partner where you're like having somebody talk, like almost talk about your thoughts with, but realize that it's more important what's coming out of you rather than what you're getting back yeah. from it. I think it yeah. can be really helpful, and especially because it's you know, free. And the which, thing is, is yeah. it's rapidly going to improve over the next, like, I mean, five years from now, it's not even going to be remotely close to what we recognize yeah, right. it as from today. Now, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, Dr. Sammy, there is one thing that, uh, that uh, you've, you've said that I think is really, uh, really wonderful. And, 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 you know, relating this to like palliative care and end of life care in mm -hmm. order to improve the end, we must start at the beginning. What yeah. is the beginning? Well, I mean, it depends who you ask, but if you ask some purists, they might say the beginning would be a public health approach, which basically means that, you know how we have a public health approach for um, vaccinating and wearing your helmet when you're riding a bike and wearing your seatbelt and don't use drugs and, mm. you know, all of these important issues. Uh, we don't have a public health approach for um, raising awareness around our own mortality, the fact that every single one of us is going to die. And so some people would say it, the beginning starts when someone's young and they're in kindergarten, um, like your child is in what? Oh, daycare. Maybe that's mm, too mm. young. But anyway, that when the gold class goldfish dies, mm. that we don't replace the goldfish with one that looks exactly the same that we talk about, you know, mm. that the goldfish died and we start socializing from the beginning. Okay. But that's not what I'm talking about. I think that's all very important and really good luck to that momentum. What I'm talking about is from the time of diagnosis 
mm. of some of a progressive life limiting illness uh, that a patient who's just labeled a patient for the first time, like what's that? People don't really realize it's a unique role that um, is deserving of advice and information. But anyway, at the beginning of a diagnosis that a patient and their family in quotation or caregiver um, should be offered information about the known way that this illness is going to unfold. Mm. And we should not hide behind terms like this illness is chronic because chronic sounds like it stays the same. You, you have it for your life, but it mm. stays the same. And we talk a lot about chronic illness in medicine, but really, again, I could name them from head to toe. There are many illnesses we call chronic that really from the time of diagnosis, we know they're not curable. And we know that it's a changing landscape, that these mm. illnesses will move from early to middle to late to terminal. And so I'm in the terminal part mm -hmm. at the terminal called terminal. Uh, and, you know, I have this unique vantage point having worked, you know, for almost 20 years, catching people at the end of the conveyor belt where no one has bothered to tell them about the moving nature of this illness. Mm -hmm. So everything has felt like a crisis. And then they come to me and I offer them information and they say, what the, you are right. kidding me. Right. No one bothered telling us this. Now you're telling me, I can't believe it. I would have made different decisions. I'm angry. I'm bitter. I have little time left. And I started feeling as a palliative care doctor, like I was part of a big problem, catching people at the end and stitching them back together into yeah. human form just before they die. So I was like, enough of this, enough of this. Something has to change at the beginning. We can focus on changing end of life till the cows come home. Do you know that saying? I'm old. I anyway, <laughs> um, but it's not going to change the fact that they're going to keep coming in droves. Yeah. So the beginning is at the beginning of an illness, not what forcing is, people. Is, I, I am curious, like, I mean, so A, it, it's interesting to hear this sentiment from a doctor. Mm -hmm. Um I, I guess I've never found myself in the position of receiving a diagnosis or being in a position where my diagnosis is like, is leading to, you know, the, like the stage where it's like there, there's no cure and this is going to like progress and very, you know, very rapidly, you're going to find yourself um, under the care of Dr. Sammy. Um, and, and nor have I like really been close to anyone in my family who's gone through that that same kind of thing. So hearing you say this now, I, I'm going, Oh, okay. This makes sense. I hear what you're saying, but mm -hmm. is this, is this, this choice of language at that stage? Is it a, is this what's being trained and B no. if not, is this what's being used only in order to avoid um, tough conversations or, or like, or conflict or, or avoid like freaking the patient or family out? Like, where does this stem from this, this sort of like dulling of language or, or sort of fluffing up the, 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 the language so that the nature of what's actually occurring isn't being hammered home to that person that's experiencing it. Okay. So a couple of things. So first of all, can I speak openly? Yes, please. About any one person's individual situation that might be sitting in a red chair. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yes, please. I mean, I mean, right. Okay. When you were saying, yeah, when you were saying, you were saying that, that, saying that whole thing, I was, was like, like, what? I was like, I don't think she was talking about like, sure, sure, hello? I know, I know you meant chair, but, but, but also, what I mean, I what I mean like is the that beginning is right where you are. But, but here, but here, yeah. like, but, but let me let me say it this way. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I'm so so I am not I am not a 45 year old man who's had good health and then all of a sudden gets diagnosed with um right. pancreatic cancer. Right. I. All I've ever known is CF. I've, mm -hmm. I, I mean, mm -hmm. when I was fucking five years old, I knew I had CF. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. like I've gone, I'm sure I've gone through the fluffed up language and, and, and throughout mm -hmm. my life, but, mm -hmm. but also I've, I've, it's been so long that now I, you spent I a good deal of your life knowing. Also, Jerry, yeah, I have all the information. Jerry, you yeah. found out you were going to die from reading a pamphlet. Nobody talked. Like the whole, one of the yeah. big things that yeah. you talk about is like, yeah, nobody so. talked to you. About <laughs> yeah. it. Like there, yeah, was, yeah, yeah. there was so but, much. But again, but again, I've cut, like, again, it's hard for me to put myself there because I've, 
I've come on the, I've come to the other side of that over the span of 30 years. Right. So Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. it has been a long time and I don't really see myself in that position. I'm more so talking of like, you know, if Dawn gets fucking, you know, your father gets, gets, Mm -hmm. gets diagnosed with like Mm -hmm. terminal cancer tomorrow. Mm-hmm. How are they going to speak to Don? You know, how are they going to speak to this guy who's been the epitome yeah. of health up to this point in his life? Physical health. I'll tell uh, you. <laughs> just joking. Just joking, Don. I'm joking, Don. You're, you're, you're mentally sound. Um, you know what I mean? So like that, that's sort of where I was coming from. But, but yes, I yeah. appreciate you pointing out the fact that I, I'm dying of CF. Thank you. No, 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 no. But what I, no, <laughs> but I think your friends, your friends were with me, right? Yeah, right. Totally. Yes, Taylor, totally. We're thinking like, yeah. what is he talking about? But anyway. yeah, yeah. 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 Because cystic fibrosis has, well, it's one, you're in a unique situation because you have had this since you was, since you were born and knew yeah. since you were five. And, um, you know, that's a different situation than the adults that I meet who have lived a reasonably healthy life and then get a diagnosis at some point. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I have patients in their 20s. Uh, I have patients in their 30s that get diagnosed with, you know, different types of cancer or ALS or MS or, you know, so I have young patients as well, but they weren't born with something like you with CF. And with CF, the, the, <clears throat> It's still not curable. However, they have come such a long way yeah. uh, in terms of the life expectancy. Um, and and now with the newer medications, which I, I think you're on uh, one of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah Trikafta. So triple therapy or whatever they call it. You have bought yourself, you know, much more time. So mm-hmm. average life expectancy um, was, you know, 17 before, uh, then it was 30, then it was 40, then it was 50. And mm-hmm. now some people are living into their eighties. Yeah. And so great, but that's not that it, but before that you were headed into, you know, your illness was going to take its course on yeah. you. Yeah. 100%. Um, and so there, anyway, and there, there's like, when, like to what you were talking about, um, sort of like right at the beginning is like, it is part and part and parcel of the, of the, of the issue with the language that you get when you enter into like a palliative care situation, when you get a diagnosis, that's going to, that's going to progress and eventually become mm-hmm. terminal is like really does start. I know they say it's not what you're talking about, but like it does start at the, at the beginning of like what we, how we, how we converse about death as a society. Like yeah. I, I have two nephews. And I remember my, my, uh, my, my, uh, my in-laws were over and their nephew, their, uh, man, I'm just getting family language. And my nephews are there. Mm-hmm. My in-laws are there. And mm-hmm. at the time they were like six and nine mm-hmm. or, or seven and 10. And, and one of my in-laws, my wife's mother, you know, when she, she was saying, Oh, so-and-so has died. But as she went to say died, she just, she, she kind of, yeah. she put her hand in front of her mouth so the kids couldn't see what she was saying. And she mouthed mm-hmm. silently mouthed the word died. In front of these kids, like, and I actually went and I, and I and I clocked it, and I went, and they they listened to the pod, like they listen to the podcast, they know what I do, yeah. and I was like, mm-hmm. I was like, wow, mm-hmm. you're, this mm-hmm. is I, I was like, I feel like this is a, I feel like the, I feel like it's we're learned- really shielding these kids from yeah. something that's like so. Just the word "die" it's is built like into sw- it's built into our word. culture and our society. Yeah. You know, like again, mm-hmm. just a death phobic society. I, I wanted to come back, Doctor Sammy, to the the point to that 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 Jerry was asking about and that you were about to make which was about mm-hmm. like where this problem actually mm-hmm. starts at the point of diagnosis so like mm-hmm. you mentioned your you you only see these people when they're terminal and by that point they already haven't been told the information that they should mm-hmm. have that would help them mm-hmm. navigate that so like where mm-hmm. where does that problem begin and mm-hmm. how does it get so bad throughout that yeah. process okay so in a nutshell um as a medical student or a resident, uh, every single one of us has to learn how to deliver babies. Whether you're ever going to deliver a baby or not, you have to deliver a certain number of babies. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, yeah. And most people don't unless they end up in family medicine or ob Okay, fine. You do not have to learn about how to care for people who are dying. Uh, it is not mandatory. It is not part of the curriculum in medical school or in most residency programs. 
Yet every single doctor, like it's it's very difficult to find an area where they won't touch point with someone with a progressive life-limiting illness at some point. There's no mandatory curriculum across our country uh, where people have to, medical students or residents have to learn about caring for uh, people who are dying. And so that's the beginning of the pro- problem. And then the next problem is, is that doctors, and I'll just talk about doctors, but we could sub in any healthcare provider, okay? Um, but doctors are also humans and they're also mm. socialized to be death denying and avoid their own mortality. And in fact, in medical school and residency, you know, we get trained to fix things and to take action and to um, be busy with offering treatments and tests. And we over medicalize things and not only that, shift all care and our training into the hospital setting. And so the total sum is that doctors like to focus on the day-to-day nitty-gritty problem-solving, the tests, the treatments, the side effects, the trees of the illness, let's just say, and forget that there is the forest, which is the big picture of the illness. So for example, let's take ALS, uh, a progressive neurologic illness. Uh, You know, from the time someone's diagnosed with ALS, it's not curable. And it has a pattern to it. Every individual person with ALS will go through, have a different illness experience, but ALS itself unfolds in a pretty predictable pattern. Like I could tell you what the first, the middle, the last chapters look like. I could tell you what are the big milestones and decision points, um, how someone's going to die with ALS, um, what the average timeline for someone with ALS. And so doctors forget that natural history, which is the storyline, like the big picture, Mm. 10,000 view from above. That actually functions as the roadmap for patients and families. But doctors don't like being there. They like being in the, okay, so let's test this. Let's try this treatment. If you have cancer, we're going to try first line, second line, Mm. third line, fourth line. There's a joke. I don't know if you guys know it. Why do they put nails in a coffin? Why? To prevent the oncologist from giving more chemotherapy. <laughs> That's a that is a so, wonderful joke. So we we feel we feel more comfortable doing things, and it it's difficult for doctors who are humans to see their patients declining and try to to reach for something else in their toolbox. favorite one-hit wonder or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have or that tv show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon now what if we could fix it i'm francesca ramsey and i'm delon grant and after 20 years of friendship we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called let me fix it each episode we'll dig into our favorite celebrities shows and brands of yesteryear and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today think of our show as an intervention but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I am I I've been thinking about this since we started our conversation, um, and now, it, it, based on what you just said, it, I think it probably fits best here. Finally, um, he can tell you about Peter Tia. Yeah, that is what that is what that is what I'm going for. Do you, are you familiar with Peter Tia at all? No. He's a he's a he's a physician. He's got a really wonderful medical, like very medical based podcast. Um, Taylor's read his book, and I read mm-hmm. his book. And uh, and you guys know didn't that. read Doctor Sammy's book, did you? I know. Well, it's on. Well, you at you didn't t- <laughs> tell me that we had a copy for it. Of it. Loser. <laughs> and and so he something that he his his whole book is really about like changing medicine and going from going from like putting the band aid on it to treat like down a uh, treating upstream um, <clears throat> preventative healthcare. Um, and and like trying to, and changing the healthcare system overall in that, in that Mm -hmm. way. So that anyway, he talks about how he became very disenchanted with the medical profession because of the Mm -hmm. obsession with keeping people alive Mm -hmm. for the sake of just Mm -hmm. having a beating heart. Like Mm -hmm. he was basically like, I, I just started seeing, you know, he, he was an, he was a, he was a, uh, a surgeon, um, Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, um, 
and a lot of, uh, uh, of oncology surgery. And he was basically saying, you know, I, I just felt like, like so much of the time we were just inflicting so much harm onto this mm-hmm. person in mm-hmm. order for their, their, you know, just the electrical activity in their brain to continue mm-hmm. for, for a, sh- a short period of time. That would, would be a horrific experience for them to go through and all this stuff. And mm-hmm. I know that palliative care really kind of like slots its way into making, you know, the things that people go through in terms of keeping them alive, palliative care really steps in to try and make that as, as the best experience that it can be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, and I know that palliative care is never, will never, will never go away. It'll always be something that's necessary because we're always going to be dying. Um, it's kind of like a, like the mechanic is trying to keep the old beater on the road and the mm-hmm. palliative care provider is trying to make it still a comfortable drive to drive. Yeah. In. And like, but, and like <laughs> you just keep getting these older and older vehicles and you're like, Fuck! Just let this one go to the junkyard. Yeah, and, and yeah. But like to yeah, what you to, to what you said to what you said there, just about like the uh, the doctors as a profession, like as a as mm-hmm. a as like a culture of medicine, uh, the mm-hmm. medical profession, seeing it as like what's happening right now, and I know that that's obviously necessary in a lot of mm-hmm. settings. I'm sure, yeah. um, but not being able to zoom out and see the bigger picture mm-hmm. um, and how that how that has, and this is sort of like where Peter Tia goes in his book is talking mm-hmm. about how that has led us to this place where we've become so good at keeping people alive. Like you see mm-hmm. lifespans, you mm-hmm. see lifespans are extended and dragged mm-hmm. out to, to, you know, to longer than they ever have before. But yet our, our life, our health span has not really yeah. gotten that much better. The quality of life. Yeah. 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 I, I would agree with that. Um, so yeah, that resonates with me for sure. Um, I, I forgot to mention that, uh, you mentioned palliative care and, you know, what we do, the angels that come in at the end, or, you know, we make the car ride a little bit better. Um, my, my take on things is a little bit provocative because I firmly believe that over time we should probably don't need as many palliative care doctors um, as we think we need. And that's very countercultural in my field. So my field would tell you that we need to pump out more and more and more and more palliative care doctors. And we need to just, in, you know, pepper ourselves across the entire healthcare system. But the truth is, is that mechanic who knows about cars and who keeps fixing the car should learn in mechanic school when to shift gears. And that mechanic should naturally be able to help the owner of the car understand when the car, putting stuff into the car um, mm-hmm. is, is uh, you know, th- that we need to sort of look differently at the value of that mm-hmm. and never call the car a jalopy, that it's just a car that's naturally getting older. We should never have to label someone palliative. And then suddenly they go to the Grim Reaper team. Mm. Um, Palliative care, when, when we've made it, we'll know because palliative care, as far as I'm concerned, would rarely need to be mentioned. It's just naturally infused into the healthcare offering of all nurses and doctors and OTs and PTs that we just learned it so that we can shift and, you know, veer right and veer left instead of making people feel that there's this weird point in time where there's nothing more we can do for you. So you're labeled slapped palliative and sent off to the Grim Reaper team. That's, so, I always thought the word, like whenever I've had someone describe palliative care to me, I always, yeah. I always had this thought in my mind where I went, well, isn't that just health care? Good care. Yeah. Like, isn't that just care? Like, yeah, you, it is. There's, there's is. symptoms and we're treating this. We're trying to treat those symptoms yeah. by, and, and making you, you know, making your day to day comfortable. <laughs> like, isn't that just, no, no, care. no. Mm-hmm. those are the, it's the doctors and then the compassionate doctors. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, like, yeah. to, to this whole thing, I, I, I had this conversation with my partner uh, just a couple of days ago. She, mm-hmm. for 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 better part of like seven or eight years, she worked in the uh, cardiovascular intensive care unit as a nurse. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've I've heard her talk about some really 
um, really hard experiences when it comes to people who <coughs> are dying and mm-hmm. family members who are present. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we were talking about this thing the other day about how there's, you have cases where like there's somebody in the hospital and they are not, they are alive, but they're not with us. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's, there's next to like a, a 0% chance that they're going to recover. And at this point, they're really just a beating heart laying in a bed and the family just does not want to let go. The mm-hmm. family will stay there and they will go, no, we're going to like, we're going to, we're going to plow through this. We're going to get mm-hmm. to the other side of this. And there is no mm-hmm. other side. This person, mm-hmm. this person's effectively yeah. dead. Mm-hmm. They just, their, their heart just happens to still be beating. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that this attitude that doctors and healthcare providers have in, you know, that you had stated earlier of like, always like going for the next mm-hmm. line of care, always trying to find that next line of care. Do you think that sort of perpetuates this yeah. feeling from the family side of like, no, oh, we'll yeah. get through this. And then, you know, which inevitably just yeah. prolongs this, like this, this suffering that this person may or may not be feeling as they just lay there incapable of doing anything, but just mm-hmm. slowly, slowly, slowly dying. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Most people end up in those scenarios uh, because no one has, for lack of better words, shepherd them through their illness with, you know, their eyes wide open, that the patient and the family have been in the dark, that there would be always something someone could put, pull out of a hat, um, to fix the person. Uh, but just because we can do things doesn't mean we should. Right. And so it's no wonder that families, when they run into trouble at the end, choose very invasive, um, procedures and are in like really struggle with accepting the fact that this person might die or is Mm going to die Mm -hmm. because they've been led to believe like no one's talked to them about that before. And many of these illnesses have, they span, you know, 10, 15 years or two years, or, you know, you can have heart disease for a very long time, but it does progress over time. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, they end up with most of the money we spend in healthcare is in the last three months of life. Right. So it's like a hockey stick pattern. Like mm-hmm. we spend this much and then all of a sudden the utilization of healthcare goes like straight up in the last three months. And, and most of it is because, um, we, we, we play this game where a lot dotty, 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 da, oops, you know, we reveal uh, someone runs into a crisis and requires intensive care. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how, like, it's interesting how, how challenging of a change this is mm-hmm. because it's like, it's similar to, to, to like any social, cause really it is a social change. Like yeah. it's, you know, they take, they take a long time, take a yeah. lot of, they take generations for it to, for yeah. it to ultimately oh. become, like substantially quantitatively different. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, cause like when I think about, you know, not, not, you know, you could point to, you could point to things like house or whatever, like dramatized medical shows, but even, mm-hmm. but even just the nature of the news when it comes to pharmaceutical developments, it's like mm-hmm. kind of like the hallmark of medicine is hope um, mm-hmm. in a lot of mm-hmm. ways, at least, at least outwardly facing. Like I remember Jer, when I met you and you were like, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> the title of your book, mm-hmm. like the, I remember meeting Jer and him going, you know, I'll probably die when I'm like 30. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, no, they mm-hmm. won't. I mean, I was right. But like, it is those things. I was right. But, you know, I, like, there's just that immediate instinct to go, nah, yeah. no, yeah. nope, we're going to figure it out. Yeah. We're going to figure it out. And, like, at the time, I had literally no reason yeah. for doubting. Mm-hmm. Where, I, where on the other hand, I was sitting there going, no, no, it's okay. Like, I, yeah, yeah, I, that's okay. Yeah. I understand but what you you're know, saying. Yeah. I was just going to say, I understand mm-hmm. what you're saying, Taylor, but I also disagree that it, that it, like, it's something that, a, a societal change that has to take generations because like, as Dr. Sammy has been sort of saying, like if the, the medical practitioners could be, could get this in the beginning mm-hmm. and start to educate people mm-hmm. on it, I think it would be mm-hmm. easier for people who already respect healthcare providers in particular, mm-hmm. the doctors who are treating them. 
um, if I think if they heard a different narrative coming from them, mm. that would mm -hmm. make a pretty profound what, difference. But what I mean, what I mean is that is that you are gonna you're going to make a difference if you say that stuff. You say the right things. Mm -hmm. You're going to get a. You're only going to get a certain percentage of people that buy into it. Mm -hmm. And then that will influence more people in the next generation of doctors mm -hmm. and then so on and so forth. Or the way that we talk to kids and then they're going to be, you're going to, you're going to influence a certain proportion of people that are going to think that way. And then that's going to increase the amount of people that then they influence. And so yeah. Dr. Or, Sammy, or, what do you or think? We, or we just <laughs> ask China to like indo in, indoctrinate TikTok with death positive feelings. And then, yeah. you know, all of our youth will be brainwashed like in fucking a weekend. And yeah, Bob's your uncle. There you go. Are you familiar yeah. with that saying, Bob's your uncle? We're we're a bit young. Yes. <laughs> uh, no, I actually do have an uncle named Bob, so <laughs> I say it all the time. Um, okay, so I have a couple things to say, so everyone just listen up, okay? Yeah. Uh, so first of all, um, what you're talking about in terms of like your rah, rah, rah to Jeremy, you know, is a natural instinct that humans have to cheerlead when in the face of something that's scary. It, it's too much for you to wrap your head around, same with most people, same with doctors. Like it can border what's called toxic positivity where the person with the illness, let's say, Jer not Jeremy, cause Jeremy's so open and, and you know, about all of this and he course corrects you guys. But um, uh, most people that have an illness would be silenced by the positivity when in their mind, they want someone to be able to sort of just be present with them and receive the information, the honest, open fears that they have. And if we just naturally surround people and say, oh, you look great today, Jeremy. Oh, you've got pink in your cheeks and you look like you've gained some weight and you look rested and oh, you look so much better than when you were in the ICU last month. Um, and you can fight this. Oh, don't talk about that, Jeremy. Don't be such a downer. Uh, you know, if we do that, it is basically like saying, like, I love you and I can't handle anything that would, you know, negative that would come your way. Mm -hmm. But you're, we're also saying, let's not talk about what's really going on. Mm -hmm. You guys are lucky because as Jeremy's friends, he has role modeled the way he wants you guys to communicate about this illness. He has told you guys and role modeled that he wants to be open, honest, frank, and like face it head on like a like a bull. And so that for you has been a real gift because if not, you guys would still be tippy toeing around it like mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. So we, you, the meaning behind toxic positivity is that we want people to have hope, but I think people don't understand that hope is an incredible um, construct that as humans, we can have hope along the entire illness until the second before we die. But the focus of hope changes as we get bites of reality. So at the beginning, a person might hope to be the wrong patient. They got the wrong patient here. I don't, I'm not the one with the cancer, let's just say. Then they might hope for um, as much time as possible. Then they might hope that the treatment works. And then they might hope that they're comfortable. And then they might hope that their family's going to be okay. You can see that people can remain hopeful, even when they get honest and open information along mm. the entire journey. But as humans, we think that that can't happen, that there's no way hope could parallel facts. Mm. But we can, which is why you can hope for the best and plan for the rest at the same time. What happens is, is if we don't do that, if we pretend and just smile the whole time, all of us, then when someone gets to the very obvious point in their illness where they know they're not going to be cured, that hope is very unrealistic. It's stuck in an earlier hope and never had the chance to evolve to a more realistic hope. Okay. So we have to get over this idea that if people understand their illness better, that they will lose hope because that is not true. That's the way I felt with our, our friend, yeah. Brandon, mm -hmm. um, was that, you know, he had cancer, uh, multiple times, three or if not four, four times. Yeah. yeah. Four. Um, and, and the last time, um, I remember him getting to the hospital and being in the hospital, like his, his last three months of being alive. And, at that point, I had never like heard from obviously not him at that time, but mm -hmm. nor nor his family that like 
the end was imminent. It was like, mm -hmm. you know, like you would come to notice that he was going to die in like the last month, but nobody mm -hmm. ever said mm -hmm. that. Yeah. And then all of a sudden when it happened, it was like, oh, fuck. Like that was mm -hmm. heavy and really hard yeah. to deal with because it was so unexpected. I mean, like knowing someone who's living with cancer and it's come back for like a fourth time, obviously you, yeah. you don't expect it's not it's unexpected, good but like, yeah. right. but like, but nobody said it. Like you intuit, but it feels but like unexpected. It, it does, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, when, and so what happens is, is we turn, okay, so we take an expected death and we turn it into what feels like a sudden death, like a car accident right. or lightning. Yeah. And the grieving around a sudden death is very different than mm. people who can openly grieve in anticipation because we know this is headed in a certain direction. So for example, I hate to say this, but let's say Jeremy was in a different situation and he entered into an advanced stage of CF and it was becoming refractory to antibiotics and he had a horrible pneumonia, et cetera. Could happen tomorrow. Um, well, yes, I guess there's always a chance, but, but it hasn't. And yeah. You're on great new medication. Well, and I don't could. mean to be. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's Jeremy's just say. Bad don't be too hopeful. <laughs> but, but I guess what I'm saying is, guess yeah. what, guys? Guess what? Brian and Taylor and Jeremy have been grieving this cystic fibrosis since you've all been in the know about it. Yeah. That you have been going through something called anticipatory grief, mm. preparing yourself, stealing yourself in a way that you know there could be a major loss in the future. Mm. So that if Jeremy had passed away, you guys would find, because you've walked this road that way, that you would have a tough time around Jeremy's death, but you guys would pick up and move on and yeah. live large sooner than had you all not talked about Jeremy's CF he went into the hospital with the last pneumonia, passed away, and you guys had never talked about this. You had never shared all of this openly, never told Jeremy how much he meant to you, never like celebrated life together like you guys have, especially on this podcast. But you would be feeling like Jeremy had been struck by lightning and your grief would start the day he died and it would last and become a little bit more complicated. Yeah. So that's the other thing that's really important is hope changes over time. But also, if we face the reality of an illness, we can begin to grieve. Mm. And that's a healthy thing to do so that we are better prepared for the loss when it comes. Mm -hmm. I, I know that like all roads seem to like lead back to communication. And, yeah. and you said something earlier that kind of reminded me of how that the communication around a lot of the stuff around, you know, it was something you said specifically about, um, you know, uh, the, the, the sort of like cheerleading um, yeah. thing that toxic we tend to positivity. do toxic positivity and how, how like I, I had a deep realization when my wife and I were, we had, we were having infertility issues. We ended up mm -hmm. doing IVF to have our, uh, have our, our daughter. And mm -hmm. in sort of like, in sort of like the heat of that experience, when things were like really stressful and like you didn't, you know, mm -hmm. everything's up in the air and you have no idea and you're, you know, you're looking mm -hmm. at odds and statistics and all this stuff. And, and Kyla, my wife would, would, would sort of be venting to me and my response mm -hmm. for a quite a long time would be very much so in the vein of what we're mm -hmm. talking about with physicians. I would be like, well, here's like, let's, here's, here's a potential solution and here's a potential mm -hmm. solution. Like, here's mm -hmm. how we might fix it. And like, maybe mm -hmm. we should do this and maybe you should do that. And maybe you should try mm -hmm. that. Classic man shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And doctor shit, apparently. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. um, and, and, and then at one point I asked the question, which is now something that I think about often, maybe not mm -hmm. often enough still, mm -hmm. but is, do you want me to try and help you find a solution? Or do you mm -hmm. just want me to be there for what you're going through and just mm. to yeah. be there to listen to the shit so that yeah. I can shoulder it with you? Mm. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's awesome. That is awesome. And that's exactly what we want our, you know, families or the inner crew mm. wrapped around the patient or the AI friend. We yeah. just want everyone to, to know that being present is as therapeutic as like bearing witness to someone's yeah. suffering requires 
you to just shut your mouth and just receive. Yeah. Just yeah. receive. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I just, I just finished my death doula training, um, Oh, uh, recently and mm-hmm. and like everything we're talking about here really f- effectively is like what I was trained to do you know it's like mm-hmm. you were mm-hmm. you were trained not not that I'm ever going to practice I just did it just to like deepen my own vocabulary surrounding mm-hmm. death but mm-hmm. but like you you know death duel is their job if you if you decide to hire one and have one be a part of the death of yourself or a family member their mm-hmm. job is to step into that space and to take everybody involved in that, including the person who's, who is going to die, mm-hmm. and to just normalize the process, to just yeah. speak about the process, to guide everybody through the process, to, to set people up to start grieving before the death comes, mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. that stuff. That's all mm-hmm. encapsulated in the mm-hmm. role of a death doula. Mm-hmm. And not to like, you know, not to, uh, not to um, uh, sort of prevent anyone from hiring a death doula going forward. But like, you Mm -hmm. don't need a death doula for that. You need, you need people who are death literate. And, Mm -hmm. and that is, Mm -hmm. that includes your healthcare providers and Mm -hmm. that includes your family members and that includes Mm -hmm. your friends and that includes yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, you can make the argument that the, that, that the fact that the idea of a death doula exists is a, is a symptom of, not right. Yes. Having yes. that I mean, stuff 1, occurring thousand percent in, yes. in the yeah. other realms yeah. in which, yeah. Um, so, I, and, yeah. and to, to that point, I mean, I, I did want to kind of ask, um, you know, I, I feel like I'm, I'm hearing you, I'm, I'm hearing a lot from you about like how there has to be change from the, from the side of healthcare, especially mm-hmm. with the way that like we use language and, but also mm-hmm. with like the, you know, also with family members and, and, mm-hmm. you know, avoiding toxic positivity, but, I want to I want to ask you about like patient advocacy. Yeah. And whether oh. or not that comes from like p- the patient themselves or the people that are advocating on behalf of the patient. Mm-hmm. Like how mm-hmm. can people advocate mm-hmm. for their or their loved one's health in a position where they might feel like, you know what? I feel like this doctor's kind of giving us the fucking like you know, the the like roses the sugar and coat. butterflies mm-hmm. sugar-coated bullshit. And mm-hmm. I want the, I want the real stuff. Like, give me the HBO yeah. fucking yeah. hardcore series. Like I want, I want that. <laughs> okay. So, um, CNCL, Dr. CNCL, um, my, uh, partner in crime, uh, for this, uh, waiting room revolution, social movement, mm-hmm. the two of us have been working on the inside for decades. I think we have like 40 years between us. He's a researcher and I'm a physician, and we've been trying to change the culture from within. Both of us found each other at a dark hour in our careers, and we decided that we are going to do an about face, that the needle ain't moving fast enough uh, in healthcare. And so we're going to leapfrog over healthcare, and we're going to become citizen facing, that the citizens of the world need to know that um, they don't know what they don't know. And if the healthcare continues to be uncomfortable, we need to arm them with the skills and knowledge they need to leech out of the system the information that they need. And so our book, our podcast, all our social media platforms are about that, Jeremy. It's about um, preparing patients and families to move from being passive to being respectfully activated, let's just say, Mm -hmm. um, or empowered or advocate for themselves, that patients and families have the right to a hell of a lot more information than they get. And fundamentally, it would change their illness experience. Mm -hmm. But if we continue to have a, a healthcare system that has low mortality awareness, or death literacy, or whatever you want to call it, um, they won't get it. They won't get it because they won't ask questions because they trust the doctor will give them everything. And the doctor won't give them everything because the patients and families aren't asking questions. And then this huge vortex happens. So the book is exactly what you're talking about. It is, if you get a new diagnosis, here's your book. This tells you how to be a patient and, Mm. and remain yourself throughout your entire illness journey and get what you need to make the decisions you need. I'm I'm curious what that because I I'm hearing I feel like there's a lot of parallels between um like going to therapy and I mean that in the sense that like therapy is really great for you but people are afraid of sometimes yeah. like uncovering 
the mm-hmm. the real truth, like getting to the really hard, mm-hmm. having those really mm-hmm. like hard conversations. Mm-hmm. Because like I think a lot of people sort of straddle this like this like equilibrium or like sense of balance mm-hmm. in their life, and they're mm-hmm. afraid that like going and mm-hmm. digging some stuff up is gonna like fuck fuck that shit up for them. So mm-hmm. so uh, <laughs> so uh, so in the same way with like you know advocating for yourselves, sometimes that like toxic positivity or that hope. It's just easier for people to oh, yeah. to to to, um, to chew on. So like to what, digest. What like what would you say to that person who's like I'm afraid of advocating okay. for myself? So I would say that psychology research definitely has uh, proven that knowledge is power for better or worse. So it might be scary to get information there is nothing worse than being in the twilight zone. Mm. And this is why we called it the waiting room revolution, because literally when you're in a waiting room, you're like, you're neither here nor there. You're either waiting for what's going to come or who's going to come or the results of something or the next steps. And philosophically, metaphorically, people who have illness are often waiting and waiting and waiting for something they don't even know. Like it, you feel like you are suspended in time. When people get information, even if it's information they didn't want to hear, they suddenly land. And again, most humans are amazing. They can grieve immediately information they didn't want. They can be sad, frustrated, mad, angry, and then move on. You cannot move on when you are in limbo Mm -hmm. and information is power. So if I say to someone, because we don't force people. So many people listening might think, well, you can't just force people to know what they don't want to know. The key is inviting people right at the beginning. So are you the kind of person I might ask that um, in your life, you've always wanted to be in the know? Do you, are you the kind of person who seeks information? Are you the kind of person who feels better when you know what's going on? And so this is the kind of way we invite people to tell us, are they that person or not? And if someone tells me, nope, I'm not that person. I like to dig my head in the sand. I just like to take things one day at a time. And I don't really want to know about the future. Mm -hmm. Then that's when I say to them, having had a lot of experience with people in your situation, I can honestly tell you that that doesn't set you up well, (laughs) Mm -hmm, that many of my patients who prefer to take things one day at a time run into major trouble. Um, You're always chasing your tail in a reactive kind of crisis, jumping from one puddle to the next. And if you don't want to know information, I'm going to totally respect that. I don't force it on people, but I want you to know that my patients and families who want to know more, even if it makes them worried to know feel way better mm. way what, more in control what what are those ramifications for the patient themselves at the end of their lives we've, we've talked a lot about like the the family and the people who are yeah. going through that with them but like for the actual person who who might be having their life extended you know another three four months or or even longer what like yeah. what are those ramifications okay so first of all we can often identify when someone is in the last year of life, you might be surprised to know that. So um, there are telltale signs when someone is headed that way. And so you can imagine if you get to the very end, and then suddenly someone reveals that, you know, you might have weeks left to live, but we might have known that months before, that they might feel regret, they might feel bitter, it gets in the way of anything that they want to sort out in those final weeks. Um, You know, who wants to die feeling resentful, angry, that they missed out on opportunities to maybe reconcile things with people, maybe tell someone like it is, um, plan for the people that are going to survive them. So not knowing and then suddenly knowing makes you basically have to work very quickly at a time where you're pretty shocked. Mm -hmm. And then prolonging someone's life um, again, has consequences depending on the situation, prolonging someone's life and making them very busy 
going back and forth to the cancer center, getting, uh, you know, fifth line chemotherapy with side effects and, and driving all over the place and except potentially paying for medication. Um, and then you die, you know, it's just, we rip the person off Ooh. from any meaningful life closure. Now I'm not saying people shouldn't go for fifth line chemotherapy, but they need to make that decision knowing mm. that these are the benefits of it. And these are the possible side effects. And there's another road. You could choose not to have this chemotherapy. And this is what that road would look like, mm -hmm. but that doesn't get presented. Mm -hmm. It gets presented like the fourth line chemotherapy is no longer working. You're lucky. We've got fifth line chemotherapy mm. and this is what it looks like. And these are the side effects and you'll come 10 times a week and we'll do this and we'll do that. And that's it. And most people say, okay, if I have no other option, but you do have another option. It is not to have that chemotherapy, but has anyone ever talked to you about what that chapter is going to look like without treatment? Mm -hmm. No, it because is. we look, we view that. I mean, I think a lot of people view that road as failure. Yeah. As yeah. going, well, I didn't beat the cancer. I didn't conquer the battle. So now I failed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And now yeah. I'm now I now I have it, to accept that that's the fact that I is, that I that I am a failure, which is bullshit. It's like, it, no, you're yeah. It is it is wild to think too. Um like Taylor, to the point you were making earlier, but like the generational like how this is a, a generational change that has to happen too. Mm -hmm. Um like thinking of the previous generations, like our our parents and grandparents. Um, you know, like my, my girlfriend's, um, grandmother's been, you know, she's, she's getting up there. She's, I think in her nineties now. And, and, um, I know that she was at the hospital finding out if she, she had cancer or not the other day and she didn't want to tell mm -hmm. her, her family members, mm -hmm. the, the prognosis. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were, we left visiting them where we went to visit them and we're like, Oh shit, should we book flights to come back in a month and like mm -hmm. see her? Or mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. you know, is she gonna be good in six months? Like, mm -hmm. how do we how do we navigate this? Like the family would be able to make a lot better decisions if they knew the reality of the situation totally. and could, you know, yeah. engage in real conversations that'd be meaningful right. rather and than going, okay, well, yeah. you know, yeah. see you next summer. It makes at the me cottage. think about like, like it makes me think about um it makes me think about genetic genetic testing. And mm -hmm. like, and again, at the end of the day. It's everyone's mm -hmm. individual choice whether they want to know these things. Personal opinion, mm -hmm. knowledge is power. You know, if yeah. I if I if I know that I have the APO E4 allele, or if I have two copies of that, and I'm extremely more likely than the average person to get Alzheimer's disease, I mm -hmm. might want to know that so I could I could try to prepare myself and do the things that we mm -hmm. know can be helpful in preventing such a disease mm -hmm. from occurring. Mm -hmm. Start if I things down, if I, if I don't know that, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Things like to remind like, yourself like of. memento. Yeah. Um, if I don't know that information, then like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing myself in yeah. my personal opinion, I'm doing myself a disservice and I'm doing mm -hmm. the disservice to yeah. the, to the people. Well, what about God's around me. plan? What about, right. <laughs> That's the piece yeah. that we're missing. Yes. Yeah. Not yeah. that a lot of people say that to me too. Like, yeah. you know, um, enough of this mumbo jumbo. I'm a deeply faithful person yeah. and only he knows. I always say, you mean she, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, th but they do many very, very faithful people will put their, um, you know, faith in God and yep. say, you know, he has a plan for me. And so they're not worried. I'm sometimes I'm jealous because yeah. I'm not deeply faithful. I'm like, wow, I want some of that. Yeah. Um, but, but they still worry about what it's going to look like between now and then. So they might not want to know their prognosis because only he knows. And after uh, death, only he knows. But most patients wonder what is going to happen between now and then. Is death a light switch or is it a dimmer? Uh, what am I waiting for? Like, I know they said there's nothing more they can do for me, but okay, so am I going to explode? Am I going to bleed? Am I going to, most people assume they're going to burst into pain before they die mm -hmm. um, or suffocate or you know, you cannot believe how many misconceptions people have about ordinary dying. Mm. You can't believe it. And so what is very scary, which we didn't touch upon, maybe we won't, is, you know, made. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and just, I just am, 
I am um, I am uh, neutral on the topic. I'm actually a maid assessor, which is very rare for palliative care doctors. But um, what scares me is how many people don't really understand where they've come from in their illness, where they're at currently in their illness, how things are going to unfold, how much time they have left, what's not going to happen as things unfold. And they ask for MAID often because of what they think dying is going to look like. And they're so scared of going through that, that Mm -hmm. they would rather Mm. get MAID. And so I became a MAID assessor because I want to make sure that anyone who I assess understands what the MAID road looks like mm-hmm. and what natural dying looks like and then make your own decision I, I can put my head on my pillow at night because I have clearly told you what both pathways look like yeah. but guess what there's not a lot of people describing that other road which is ordinary dying is it, but is we that have a you, lot of people who can describe yeah I was just gonna say is that Go what ahead. you mean by being neutral on made mm. Yeah, I'm totally neutral on made. It's legal. So I see myself as like helping people make decisions. I help people make decisions about whether or not they want to stop chemotherapy or whether or not they want to continue on their BiPAP or, you know, whether. So I help people make decisions when they come to me and say they want to explore made. Uh, I I am neutral on it. It is legal. And my goal is to make sure this person makes the best decision for them. Um, I mean, like having, having, uh, of, of, of course, people can have um, varying opinions on uh, what the legisl- what the, what the legislation and the language within it looks like. But I mean, is there yeah. really another, in my opinion, <laughs> is there really another, can you be anything other than neutral if you're not the person dying? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Uh-uh. I, I, I'm saying, I, I'm saying that like rhetorically, like can, is it really anybody's right to be anything but neutral if they are not the person well going through. Maybe, are you, uh, do, wait, does that does that does, do you do you not does that not feel right to you oh well i mean you're asking me but i mean i'm telling you it is a very very contentious topic yeah. in families and in healthcare yeah. right and, no. and i will yeah. go as far yeah. Yeah. I uh, sorry. And I, I just wanted to give it the context. Of, like, I understand that it yeah. is. I understand that it is. I'm go. I'm saying it surprises me that people can be yeah. anything but neutral when it yeah. comes to yeah. when it comes to something that is so obviously the most personal thing. Yeah. I mean, the mm-hmm. I understand that you're trying to separate the choice of choosing to die versus the actual legislation that allows a certain group of people right. to do it, that's, which that's is a, really mm-hmm. difficult that's to force thing. those things. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Sorry if mm-hmm. I just muddied yeah. the waters and, and all that. No, I mean, it's okay. I, it surprises me that not everybody else is more concerned about the, the aliens and the NHI that's, that are clearly in our skies, but you know, <laughs> clearly, what, what are you, you going to fucking do? Right. Um, Dr. Sammy, this, yeah. uh, this, this was, this was, uh, exactly what I thought it was going to be, which which it was just a, an absolute delight of a conversation. You are, I, I mean, clearly you are you are a physician who cares about the work mm-hmm. that you do, and that's mm-hmm. wonderful. But on top of that, you're also a really great conversationalist, a really great educator, a really great podcaster. I mean, it's just <laughs> so fun to sit down and chat with someone like yourself. Um, this has been an absolute delight, and folks. If you didn't get enough of Dr. Sammy, well, guess what? You can subscribe to Waiting Room Revolution podcast right now, wherever you find podcasts. You might even find me on one of the episodes if you're <laughs> not if you if you're not tired of me yet. Um, and if if uh, if you're if any of this resonated with you, and honest to God, like I feel like all of this should resonate with everybody because mm-hmm. guess what? Nobody listening to this right now is not going to get sick and die at some point in their life. Mm-hmm. Um, get well, sick and you, or die. Yeah, I was um, going to say, you could mm-hmm. die without You could die sick. without being sick, yeah. But you can't live without dying. And you can't be sick without That's living right. to die, you know? And you can't so, die without really, truly living. <laughs> so Okay, if, and only 10% of the population will die suddenly from accident or lightning. 90% of us will get something, our yeah. ticket, that triggers 
the last hurrah, whether it's aging or an illness, 90% of us. Yeah. 90% of you should be ready to hope for the best and plan for the rest because Mm -hmm. that is exactly what the book is called. Seven keys for navigating a life-changing diagnosis, which could Mm -hmm. happen to you or is happening to Mm -hmm. you right now. The book is available next week, September 19th. Mm -hmm. Um, Pick the book up. You can pre-order it right now if you're listening to this right now. Um, mm-hmm. It's available for pre-order on Amazon. Uh, Dr. Sammy, I hope we can have you back on the show at some point in the near future. Yeah, I have way more questions. Talk about yeah. all the things. Uh, because I hope you're, so you're too. You're a lovely guest, and and uh, we're we're big fans. So thank oh, you so thank much. You this so has been much. such a delight. We need a revolution of citizens. If enough people rush the healthcare system with a new vibe, like being activated, we will make a change. And yes, it'll be generational, but I actually think it could happen sooner rather than later. So good luck to all of us. You well, thank you first. so much. Dr. Stammy, we're storming the hospitals on January 6th <laughs> oh, no. of 2024. Oh, oh God. Storm oh, all of the hospitals oh. January 6th. Yuck. Waiting room Sammy, you walked right into we'll that one. We'll be sending out a Facebook no. group later. Uh, no, no. Yeah, we're on Signal. Get the telegrams. Oh. No, no. We're gonna, I'm going to get kicked off. That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even Better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.